Well, this has been a year, 2020, that we wish we could do over between the uh, tornado and the pandemic and the economic downturn and now the racial injustice and the riots. Uh, I've not seen anything like this since 1968. That was a pretty bad year. But occasionally we have times like that, and it increases the anxiety of all of the world, and it increases our anxiety, yours and mine. But then on top of all of the global and national issues, we have these personal problems, don't we? They just stab us like a knife, and there is a lot of worry, anxiety, and fear going on in everyone's life and family right now. But the Bible has something to say about that. In fact, the whole Bible really is a great antidote to worry. But as I said last week, I want to review for just a moment. There are three passages that mean a great deal to me, and they are Trinitarian in nature. This is sort of a visualization that I do. But when I feel a panic attack coming on or something that I am uneasy about, then I just remember God the Father is here, God the Son is here, God the Holy Spirit is there, and God the Father says in Psalm 37, do not fret. And God the Son says in Matthew chapter 6, do not worry about your life. And God the Holy Spirit says in Philippians 4, by the inspired hand of the Apostle Paul, do not be anxious about anything. Now, those are three very declarative statements. They are wonderful when you put them together. Do not fret. Now, just imagine God saying this to you personally. Do not fret. Do not worry about your life. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, we can't cover all three of those passages, but we can at least look at Psalm 37. And so I'd like to invite you to turn there. And it's such a rich psalm that I'm only taking the first eight verses for, next, for this uh, last Sunday and this Sunday. But let's turn there together and I'll read it with you. Psalm number 37. The superscription says, a psalm of David. I'm reading this in the New King James Version. It actually isn't the version I normally use, but I love this passage in this version. And so I memorized it in this particular text. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. What a wonderful passage. The rest of the chapter is also wonderful. But remember what I said last week. This was written by David when he was much older, when he was along in life looking back over things. 
And we know that because verse 25 says, I once was young, but now I am old. And I have a theory about this chapter. I cannot prove it. You can, you know, challenge me on this if you want to. But here is my theory, just to repeat very briefly from last week. When Joshua conquered the promised land in the book of Joshua with the 12 tribes of Israel, they only conquered a sliver of all that God had promised to give to them. He said that the land of Israel should extend from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates and from Lebanon down to the bottom portions of the Negev Desert. And they never conquered all of that, only a sliver of it. And they didn't do it in the days of Samuel. They didn't do it in the days of Saul. But when David came along, now David was a great student of the Bible. He had the Bible internalized. He knew the promises that God had given to Abraham. He knew all of the promises and the truths given to the patriarchs. He knew the law that came from Sinai. He had all of the scriptures available to him. He knew them. He internalized them. They became the reservoir for all of his psalms. And so he knew exactly what God wanted for Israel, and he knew exactly where those boundaries should be. And so he began working as a warrior, as a general, to expand the boundaries of Israel. And they never did get to the fullness of all that God had promised for them, but he claimed a lot of ground that nobody had had before. So what do you do with this new territory? You do what Israel is doing now. You annex it, and you send in settlers, and you build communities. And when you do that, you are sending people into a rather hostile region where there is a defeated enemy, and they are to settle down in that area and to begin to establish God's presence there. And I think that David wrote Psalm 37 for these people. He says in verse 3, dwell in the land. He says in verse 9, those who wait upon the Lord shall inherit the land. He says in verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. He says in verse 18, God will give you your inheritance. He says in verse 22, blessed, those blessed by him will inherit the land. He says in verse 27, depart from evil and do good and dwell in the land. He says in verse 29, dwell in it forever. He says in verse 34, he will exalt you to inherit the land. So David clearly was writing this psalm to people who were trying to settle down and inherit and claim and present their families, uh, a community, and land that had been conquered. So I can't prove that, but it seems to me this is who he is writing to. And if so, then it makes it so appropriate to us because here we are, and God has promises for us that will lead us down the path of his will and a hostile world with a defeated enemy. There's a verse, to me it's a remarkable verse, in 1 John chapter 5 that says, We are the children of God and the whole world, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 
that explains so much of what we are seeing in the headlines, not just in this past week, but all of this year. The whole world, the political world, the nations of the world, the capital cities of the world, academia, entertainment, the whole world is under the control of the evil one, except for those who are the children of God. And the Lord has a pathway marked out for us. It is his will for our lives. It is lined with promises. It's our promised land. And we are marching down God's will on the basis of his promises in a world that is under the control of a defeated enemy. And so it's no wonder that we have a great deal of anxieties or we are tempted with a great deal of worries. No wonder you have a lot of pressure on you. No wonder things aren't going in some area of your life the way you want. So what do you do as you deal with these challenges? And these eight verses give us eight different techniques for dealing with stresses and anxieties in life. And the first one, do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of these people that are all around you in this land. They'll soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. But number one, trust in the Lord. And I said last week, this is a Davidic invention in a way. Now, I'm just speaking about the English Bible here. But when you study the English Bible and you look up the word trust, you cannot find it in Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy or Judges or Ruth or 1 Samuel. It's only when David comes along a thousand years after Abraham that he popularizes this concept of trusting the Lord. Now, certainly people before then had faith in God. They believed in him. But David did for the concept of trust what Martin Luther did for justification by grace through faith. He was a great theologian. He knew the Bible. And he just said, look, on the basis of the promises of God given to the patriarchs and the law given through Moses and the books that we have so far in the Bible, here's what you've got to do. You can just trust the Lord. And his writings, the Psalms, are filled with this. Just one day read through some of the Psalms. You can almost take any section and with a colored pencil, color that word trust. David just kept saying, trust, trust, trust. And he knew all about trust. We know that from his teenage encounter with Goliath. The second thing he says here is to do good. You are here on this occupied land to do good. And not only does that help other people and fulfill God's will for your life, but when you are busy in doing things, then it helps steer you away from the obsessions that are preoccupying you concerning things that are worrying you. Anytime you're worried about something, don't sit there and wring your hands. Just do the next thing. And then thirdly, in verse 3, Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness is the way the New King James puts it. I love that phrase. Just feed on the promises of God, which are sustained by his faithfulness. And the concept of faithfulness, the faithfulness of God, it's referred to 66 times in the Bible. 
is simply his absolute unwavering commitment to be truthful to and to fulfill every promise he has made in this book. He is faithful, and his faithfulness is anchored in his sovereignty, and it is guaranteed by his providential omnipotence, and it means that anytime you go through life, you'll find a promise for every problem you have. You will never have a problem in life, but what there is a promise there that will carry you through that problem. I know this is true. It's always been true for everybody, but I've found that it's been true for me. Anytime you have a problem, you can either focus on the problem or you can go into the Bible and say, Lord, I know that you have a promise that will sustain me through this problem. And it's just like when you go water skiing. You grab hold of that promise and the powerful engine of God's omnipotence will pull you out of your distress and will give you victory because the problems are temporary, but the promises are eternal. So you have to feed on his faithfulness. And then fourthly, verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight, David says in Psalm 1, in his word day and night. When you're delighting in his word, when it's just a joy, you can't wait to get some time to sit down and study the Bible. And when you know that as you study the Bible, you're there with the Lord and he's meeting with you and you're just constantly revived and falling in love with him over and over again. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will, it doesn't say he will fulfill all of the desires you have. It says he will give you, it's even better than that. He will give you the desires of your heart, the desires that he wants to place within you that corresponds to that pathway of his will for your life. So all of that we looked at last week. Trust in the Lord, feed on his faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart and do good. Now, number five, here we're starting today. The next verse says, commit your way to the Lord. And then he repeats, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Commit your way to the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to commit something? Have you ever committed something to somebody? My son-in-law, the man who married my, the oldest of my three daughters, went to Iraq. Some of you maybe were involved in the Gulf Wars, and, and he was engaged in combat, and he came back traumatized by all of that, but he had been awarded a special medal for valor. And he brought it to me when he got back, and he said, I don't want this medal around the house. I'm trying to forget. And he says, I'm afraid I'll lose it anyway, and it might mean something to my children later. He said, will you keep this for me? And so the medal and the certificate I have in safekeeping. He committed that to me, and I'm keeping it for him. I remember years ago when my wife was mobile and we wanted to go to California for the weekend and I asked my mom, will you come down and, and watch over our children? And she came down from East Tennessee and she was there all weekend long and we went to California. We had committed our children to her. It means to entrust something valuable to another person. Now, what if Ethan 
just paced back and forth every day. And he said, I think that my father-in-law is going to lose my medal. Or what if Katrina and I had worried the whole weekend that my mother couldn't take care of our girls? It wouldn't have said very much about our opinion of the person to whom we had committed our precious objects. So when we commit something to the Lord, and then we keep wringing our hands and worrying about it, it's a poor reflection of what we really think about the Lord. And the great thing is, there is everything, every part of your life that is available to give to the Lord. Jesus said when he was dying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He used this word. He was dying, but he said, Lord, the part of me that isn't going to die, I'm going to entrust with you until the resurrection. And it says in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, they stopped and established various churches, and then they visited them again. And on that second visit, it says that at every one of them, they appointed elders, and they knelt down, and they committed them to the Lord with prayer and fasting. Here Paul had started all of these fledgling churches, but he couldn't stay with them. And these people, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have a lot of training. He was concerned about them, but he entrusted them to the Lord. And at the very end of his life, Paul said in the book of 2 Timothy, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded he is able to keep what I have committed unto him against that day. And Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 3 says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Isn't that a great verse? Proverbs 16, 3, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. So this should be sort of a ritual that we develop in our lives. Uh, Dr. Easley mentioned my book, Mastering Life Before It's Too Late. And up in East Tennessee, on the Tennessee-North Carolina border, we have some family land, several acres there, and we, there's a house. And you climb straight up the mountain to the very ridge on the northwest corner, and there's a big rock there. It's hard to get to. It's a pretty steep climb. But that's my prayer rock. And I remember going, I was nervous about this book and how it would do, and it was a new publisher for me, and I didn't know how they would do with it. And... and um, and I hiked up that mountain with the manuscript, and I just knelt down at that prayer rock, and I said, Lord, I'm committing this book to you. Whatever happens with it, it's in your hands. And, you know, from that point on, I really didn't worry about whether the book did well or badly. You know, I just figured it's committed to the Lord now. He is going to use it however he wants to. And if it flops and only five people buy a copy, then maybe one of those people, it will change their life in a way that it will change history. It's all in the Lord's hands, and I just gave it to him. It's a wonderful thing to be able to commit things to the Lord. You buy a new car, and you can just place your hands out and then say, Lord, I'm committing this car to you. To you. It's yours, a new computer. You, the Lord gives you a a child, and you take and dedicate that child and commit them to the Lord. You get a new job. Whatever it is, you're facing a burden, you just commit it to the Lord. You are entrusting it to him. And this is what David says in Psalm number 
36 and verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. One of my favorite hymns is written by Paul Gerhardt, who was a German pietistic hymnist in Berlin and very wonderful, very deep lyrics. And here is one of his hymns. He says, commit whatever grieves thee into the gracious hands of him who never leaves thee, whom heaven and earth commands, who charts the clouds their courses, whom winds and waves obey. He will direct thy footsteps and make for thee a way. So, what do you do if you have some worries and anxieties? You trust in the Lord. You do good. You feed on his faithfulness. You delight yourself in the Lord. And then you take anything and everything you need to in your life and you commit it to the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And then the verse number 7 tells us the next thing we do. We rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Now that's a very interesting phrase and it doesn't occur very often in the Bible. In fact, there are two books in the Bible that speak a great deal about resting in the Lord. And one is the book of Psalms and the other is the book of Isaiah. And you can find this phrase in those two books, but also in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, when he said, come unto me all you who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. When the Bible talks about rest like this, it's talking about the ability to rest physically, but it's particularly talking about the emotional and the psychological and the mental rest we need. It is the removal of the strain that we feel pressing down on us. I read about one lady. She wrote a blog, and I thought it was very interesting. Her name was Nancy Lapont, and actually she wrote a whole book about it later. She said that she had a lot of pressures on her. She lost her job. Her husband lost his job. He was a Vietnam vet. He was suffering from Agent Orange, and they were having trouble with the VA, and then their kids got into trouble, and then their parents were having elderly issues. And she said, it all was weighing so heavily upon me. I couldn't sleep at night. I felt this strain. And then she said one day, it's as though I heard the Lord just say in my ear, one word, rest. You need rest. You need to rest. And she said, Lord, do you mean that I need more sleep? And she started going to bed a little bit earlier, getting up a little bit later, occasionally taking a nap, and that did help her. But the Lord kept whispering, rest, rest. And so she went to the Bible and looked up every occurrence of the word rest and a concordance. There's over 500 times that word occurs, but she went through them quickly and deleted most of them from her study because, you know, it talks about the rest of the disciples and things like this that really don't, doesn't use the word like that. But then she found that English word rest that occurred a number of times in a spiritual way. And she 
did a Bible study on that, and she said, I just couldn't believe. Hebrews talks about entering into the rest of God. Jesus says, follow me, and I'll give you rest. But Psalms and Isaiah especially talk about rest. And she said, I realized that when I do what God wants me to do in turning my burdens over to him, that there is a physical and a mental and a psychological rest that I should revel in. And that just changed her perspective and helped her so much. I've often found when I'm struggling with a particular issue that if I just search that issue through the Bible topically, maybe it's, for example, my temper, which we discussed in the, with the children, whatever it is, if you study that verse, uh, that subject topically, pull out the verses that especially speak to you, study them carefully in their context, write them down, memorize some of them, it is of tremendous benefit to you mentally and psychologically and spiritually and in every way. She did this with the word rest, and we have to learn to rest in the Lord. This is what J. Hudson Taylor, it was life-changing for this missionary to China, the great founder of Chinese missions. And he came away with the feeling that his favorite hymn was one that says, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. He said, I used to think that all of the work depended on me, that I was doing all of this work for the Lord. And then I realized I wasn't doing anything for the Lord, but if I would let him, he would do it through me. And he said, that took the strain off my life, and I rested in him. I did the best I could, and then I just rested in the Lord. Well, this is what the psalmist says here. And then the next thing, number seven, is to wait patiently for him. This is in verse seven, to wait and to wait patiently for him. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, it means that when we have done what we can do and there is no resolution, when we have thought through things the best we can and there is no decision, then we commit it to the Lord and we wait for him to work or to resolve or to reveal or to show us what to do. And we just say, Lord, I am waiting here on you. Let me describe it this way. Here we have our wanting Maybe right now there is something you want. Maybe a friend, it might be a husband or a wife, it might be a degree, it might be a job. You've done what you can do, but you have wanting. Over here is God's working. He is going to complete every promise and fulfill every pledge he has given to you. The time between our wanting and God's working is waiting. And it isn't a bad thing to wait because it is allowing God on his schedule to assemble the circumstances in a way that will ultimately be for your superior happiness and your greatest joy. And so we wait and trust his sense of timing. This is maybe the best illustration of this in the Bible is when Mary and Martha cried out and sent word to Jesus, our brother, look at him. Jesus, he is laying here. He's got 104 fever. We think he's got the coronavirus. He can't breathe. He is dying. Please come. 
and help us. And Jesus got that message and he lollygagged and tarried four days where he was and showed up late. But it's because he knew his timetable. He knew his schedule. And he wanted to do things according to his agenda in a way that would be for everybody's good. And faith is tested and developed during times of waiting. So we have to wait on the Lord. There's something strengthening about doing that. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? The Lord Almighty is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the strength of the weak and those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. So waiting on the Lord is simply a way of allowing our minds to enter into God's calendar. Now, I came to my church, the Donaldson Fellowship, as senior pastor on January the 1st of 1980. And I loved being senior pastor. I was there through the 80s and through the 90s and through the first decade. I was there for 36 years. But near the end of that period, I began to realize my wife is disabled, the church is growing, I've got writing assignments now, I've got speaking engagements, I can't do all of this, and I've got to give something up. And I didn't want to give up my writing or my speaking because I love doing that. And I wasn't willing to give up my wife. So I realized I had to change my circumstances at church and I didn't want to leave the church because I loved it. So what do you do? And I prayed about that for four years. Four years. I had a little, about three pages in my prayer journal. And I drew calendars with all 12 months. And, and uh, I would think, here is, this is going to be my 35th anniversary at my church and my 36th anniversary at my church. And here's how old I'll be on this particular day. And and. I said, Lord, when do you want me to make this move? And I began to realize, I need to do this now. Uh, nobody's going to realize what I'm doing, but if I do this, then it may set the stage for later on for something good to happen that won't be traumatic. And I just really prayed every day over those several pages, and one day the Lord just said, this is the time you get back from your July vacation, you meet with the leadership, and, and I just had a sense of God's timing with it all. When the time came for me to move from senior pastor to teaching pastor, then I knew it. I absolutely knew in my heart when that moment came. I still didn't want to do it, but I knew what God's will was for me. But it came from waiting on him over a period of 48 months or so. So there are times when things aren't going to happen immediately in your life. But if you pray about them and give God time, 
then you'll come to understand his schedule for the different sequences of things that you need to do or that you're going through. So that is the seventh thing. So let's review here. In order to get away from this life of constant strain and fretting and anxiety, what do we do? We trust in the Lord. We do good, it says in Psalm 37. We feed on his faithfulness. We delight ourselves in the Lord so that he can give us the desires that we need, that we ought to have. And then we continue on with these other steps that just unfold for us very naturally. We commit our way to the Lord. We rest in him. We wait on him. And then finally, in verse number eight, cease from anger and forsake wrath. We say, Lord, the last step here is to release any bitterness that is accumulated along the way. You know, when you're frustrated or angry, it's very often because there's some injustice. All of the anger we see in our nation right now is in large part because of injustice. There is tremendous anger, and we all have anger. We get angry, and we're frustrated. What do we do about that anger? Because if you carry it with you and internalize it, it turns into resentment and bitterness, and the Bible says that a whole uh, crop of evil things come from the root of bitterness in your life. You can't allow bitterness and anger to poison your personality. But if someone has abused you in any way, or they've taken advantage of you, or they've hurt you, maybe, in a, maybe it's just been an insult, maybe it's been a traumatic thing, but what do you do with that anger? And especially if you cannot resolve the issue, what do you do with it? This says, cease from anger. Give up bitterness. Just release it. I mean, it's as simple as can be. It says in verse 3, cease from anger and forsake wrath. You say, how do you do that? Just all of a sudden you're angry and then you're not angry anymore? How do you do that? Well, of course, on one level, it's not very easy at all. But on another level, it comes from an awareness of the truth of Romans chapter 12. Leave room for God's wrath. It is mine to avenge, says the Lord. So here you had people, they were trying to occupy a territory they had a defeated enemy who was still hostile towards them. There were offenses, there were abuses, there were insults, there were epitaphs hurled at them. They would get angry. But the Lord is going to have the last word in every given situation. And there are times when we can't resolve an issue. So we have to say, Lord, it says leave room for your wrath. And if you are going to step in with wrath and vengeance, then I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to let go of my own anger. Now, I've done this in certain situations, and, and you really can. I don't think you can do this without an awareness of the great sovereign justice of God. But whoever has hurt you, the Lord knows about it. The Lord's going to deal with it. He's going to even the score. His power 
of getting justice is inexorable. He is either going to convert or condemn that person. You don't have to make sure that final justice is done. Now, if there's something you can do to reconcile the situation or to bring the person to justice, then, of course, do it. If you can do something legally, do it. If you can do something and and bring about a reconciliation, do it. But in those cases where you are powerless, give it to God. And say, Lord, I'm going to let you settle up with that person. I'm going to let you allow your wrath to step into their life. I'm going to turn them over to you because I've got to get on with my life. And I've got to release this bitterness by faith and trust that you're going to bring about and leveling of the playing field and evening of the scales that you're going to work it out on my behalf. I give this hurt to you. And there is something about that. When it is anchored in the almighty wrath of God himself. You know, God wouldn't be God if he didn't have wrath. People sometimes don't like the concept of the wrath of God. But when God saw an injustice, when God saw the Holocaust, when God saw children being abused, if he didn't have anger and wrath and a response towards that, then he would be imperfect. And the Lord knows every abuse or every insult you've ever faced. Everyone that's ever taken advantage of you, he knows about it. And he is angry about it. And he's going to level things out. And he has his ways. And it may be the person will be redeemed. It may be the person will be condemned. But you can trust him to be your advocate. We have an advocate, the Bible says. And so when we realize the overwhelming eternal power of the wrath of God and we leave room for God's wrath, then we're able to release some things and just take a deep breath and say, Lord, I give it to you. And we cease from anger and forsake wrath. We do not fret, for it only causes harm. Now, that's just the eight verses at the beginning of Psalm 37. I mean, there's a lot more verses here, but I don't have time. But in these eight verses, we have these eight steps that David gives to us, the Lord gives to us, to help us to deal with the things that cause us to fret by day and by night. And then on top of that, Jesus said, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about your clothes? Look at the flowers of the field. They don't spin or toil. But not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of those. And you are more valuable than they, O you of little faith. So do not worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. The pagans seek all of those things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. And 
then the Holy Spirit says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, make your requests known unto God. In every situation, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, what is worrying you today? The word of the Lord to you is, do not fret, do not worry about your life, do not be anxious about anything.